On today's episode of Fights for Rights, we have a patient, Rapunzel, telling us about her experience in the Enchanted Forest mental facility that she was sent to and why she feels as if she did not receive the proper treatment. We all know the story of Rapunzel. We know that she was locked in a tower against her will until her Prince Charming was destined to come and save her. But picture this. What if the reason that Rapunzel was put in the tower was because she was found guilty of trying to poison her stepmother? When put on trial in front of the king, Rapunzel, instead of being sentenced to death for treason or put in the dungeon, she pled guilty by reason of insanity stating that her fairy godmother told her to do it. With this information of the persuasion of a non-existent fairy godmother, the king finds Rapunzel guilty by reason of insanity and locks her in a tower. In the tower, Rapunzel is given everything that she needs in order to keep her and those around her safe. The tower's purpose is to help Rapunzel return to her normal state of mind. That is, a state of mind without the presence of a fictional fairy godmother. The king sends the best physicians to her weekly and ensures that Rapunzel has plenty of books to read and activities to keep her occupied. However, when the time came, for Rapunzel's yearly evaluation in front of the king's court to see if she had indeed been returned to a normal state of mind. Rapunzel claims that she had not been receiving the proper treatment in order for her state of mind to return. Rapunzel also requested that the court release her from her punishment in the tower because the time she would have spent in the dungeon for the same crime would have been a year. And since Rapunzel had already spent that time in the tower not receiving the proper care, that she should not have to serve any longer than what her punishment would have been in the dungeon since she had the inherent right to receive the correct treatment and didn't receive it. The king was appalled by this news as he ensured daily that Rapunzel was given the care that she needed. He informed the court that Rapunzel has indeed received the care required for her hallucinations and that if she's not returned to her sane state of mind, then she clearly needs more time in the tower. The court considers this and considers Rapunzel's right to receive the proper treatment. After careful consideration of the her physician's treatment plan, and the progress that Rapunzel had made, they determined that the care that Rapunzel was receiving was indeed the care that she needed and that her rights were not being violated. Rapunzel was then told that she was going to spend another year in the tower receiving treatment and that she would be evaluated again the following year. Rapunzel's story is one that is similar to court cases that have brought into question patients' rights to receive psychiatric treatment. We will explore some of the details of those court cases that have begun to set the precedent for determining what those rights are.
So the first court case that we're going to talk about is Rouse v. Cameron, which happened in 1966. In Rouse v. Cameron, Charles Rouse had been tried for carrying a weapon without a license. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity and committed without a hearing to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C. He was 18 years old at the time. The maximum sentence was one year on the criminal charge. But years later from the hospital, Rouse filed a petition for habeas corpus. Habeas corpus is a writ requiring a person under arrest to be brought before a judge or into a court, especially to secure the person's release unless lawful grounds are shown for their detention. So in layman's term, basically he requested to be seen before a judge to request that he be released from the hospital unless the judge determined that he deserved to continue out his sentence for um, the plea that he had for being uh, for insanity. In Rouse v. Cameron, the court decided that a person who's committed to a mental hospital after pleading not guilty by reason of insanity has a constitutional right to treatment while institutionalized. Judge Bazelon held that there is a, quote, right to treatment for people confined in mental institutions. Although he had a District of Columbia statute to rely on, Judge Bazelon explained that the denial of treatment raised constitutional questions as well. He observed that regardless of the statutory authority, involuntary confinement without treatment is, quote, shocking. The obligation to provide treatment exists even in the absence of current resources. So by continuing to fail to provide the adequate treatment cannot be justified by the lack of staff or facilities. Judge Bazelon became the first appellate judge to say that civilly committed mental patients had a right to treatment. The government, when holding people involuntarily, has an obligation to provide psychiatric care. Rouse's case was just that an individual case. But what about the systemic denial of treatment in these institutions? Rouse's case encouraged courts to begin to address that as well. It is important to note that the decisions of the treating professionals are not conclusive, and the opinions of experts at trial may be relevant to whether the treating professionals' decisions substantially departed from accepted standards. The next case that we're going to explore occurred in 1972, Wyatt v. Stickney. In Wyatt v. Stickney, a federal court in Alabama held that for the first time, people who are involuntarily committed to state institutions because of mental illness or developmental disabilities have a constitutional right to treatment that will afford them a realistic opportunity to return to society. This case was a landmark decision and it took more than three decades to work its way through the federal court system, making this case the longest running mental health lawsuit in United States history.
the Wyatt v. Stickney ruling led to many reforms in the nation's mental health systems, and it led to the creation of minimum standards of care and rehabilitation for people with mental illness and developmental disabilities. The impact of what this case has accomplished is extremely important. The principles of humane treatment of people with mental illness through litigation have become part of the fabric of law in this country, and even international law. Some examples of how Wyatt v. Stickney set the precedent for other court cases are exemplified in the following. After hearing arguments in the case, U.S. District Court Judge Frank M. Johnson Jr. ruled on March 12, 1971, that thousands of Bryce patients who had been committed involuntarily quote, unquestionably have a constitutional right to receive such individual treatment as will give each of them a realistic opportunity to be cured or to improve his or her mental condition. He noted that these patients had been involuntarily committed through non-criminal procedures and without the constitutional protections that are afforded to defendants in criminal proceedings. He continued that adequate and effective treatment is constitutionally required because, absent treatment, the hospital is transformed into a penitentiary where one could be held indefinitely for no convicted offense. Judge Johnson proclaimed to deprive any citizens of his or her liberty upon the altruistic theory that the confinement is for humane therapeutic reasons and then fail to provide adequate treatment violates the very fundamentals of due process. The decade-long efforts in many post-Wyatt cases to improve institutional care were followed by the development and implementation of legal theories to support the shifting of care from institutions to the community. The last case that we're going to discuss is Youngberg v. Romeo, a case that happened in 1982. In Youngberg v. Romeo, Nicholas Romeo was a man with significant developmental disabilities. He had lived with his parents until he was 26, but after the death of his father, his mother was unable to care for him. Upon petition of his mother, pursuant to the procedures for involuntary commitment, he was committed to Pennhurst State School and Hospital in 1974. Romeo's mother became concerned by the numerous injuries that he incurred while living at Penhurst. On November 4, 1976, she filed a suit in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania on his behalf, alleging violation of his rights under the 8th and 14th Amendments for failing to institute appropriate measures to avoid injuries, restraining him for prolonged periods on a routine basis, and failing to provide appropriate treatment. The jury verdict was appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, which reversed and remanded the case for a new trial. The court held that the Eighth Amendment did not apply to the rights of the involuntarily committed, but the Fourteenth Amendment did. 
However, the Court of Appeals could not agree on the standards by which to judge whether Romeo's 14th Amendment rights had been violated. The Supreme Court granted the petition for certiorari in this case to consider the substantive rights for those involuntarily committed uh, mentally ill persons under the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. The Supreme Court also affirmed Romeo's constitutional right to minimally adequate habilitation. One of the circuit court judges is quoted saying that he believes that the plaintiff has a constitutional right to minimally adequate care and treatment. However, these particular circumstances of this case, the court concluded that it did not have to go any further than to conclude that the respondent's liberties or Romeo's Liberty interests require the state to provide minimally adequate or reasonable training to ensure safety and freedom from undue restraint. In determining what is minimally adequate training, the court stressed that the courts must show deference to the judgment exercised by a qualified professional. Youngberg requires the balancing of an institutionalized person's liberty interests and the relevant state interests, which the court identified as not as budgetary or administrative, but rather as the state's interest in ensuring the exercise for professional judgment. So what does all of this mean? Defining what treatment means while in a mental hospital has not been consistent across the board. It has been up to the discretion of the judges to determine whether or not the facility has met the requirements of treatment for the patient. The court has recognized, however, that the liberty rights are absolute and some of them even conflict each other. The restriction of the liberties might be necessary and appropriate and an institution cannot protect its residents from everything. However, the court should make sure that professional judgment that was carried out, but should not act in the place of the professionals who are qualified to make the correct judgments. So in many of these cases, the court could not act as a professional determining whether or not the person in question was mentally rehabilitated but instead they had to determine whether or not the institution that the individual was at had the ability to uh, receive proper care and if the institution was providing that proper care um, as, as necessary. Um, in some of the cases, the courts decided that the answer was yes. For example, in our first case, uh, Rouse versus Cameron, the courts decided that he um, had a right to treatment, yes, but that um, the treatment that he was receiving was indeed ad adequate. In Wyatt versus Stickney, this one set the precedent for a lot of developmental disabilities to be considered as needing care and that psychiat psychiatric care should be considered along with a lot of other medical rights. And then in Youngberg versus Romeo, um, the courts decided that they couldn't act as the mental health care professionals. They decided that, yes, some of the um, constitutional rights uh, of Romeo were, were being violated and that as such, the legal 
way to solve the issue was to require that the institution themselves made sure that the professionals working at the facility were receiving proper training to care for their patients. So what does this mean for the future of patient rights? Because of the aforementioned court cases, in the future, the courts have the ability to base their decisions off of a set precedent. The courts have come to the overwhelming conclusion that involuntarily committed patients deserve rights to proper care, especially the patients who are involuntarily committed for non-legal reasons. There is still much to navigate when it comes to mental illness in institutions. The definitions of rehabilitation have not been made clear for many individuals, so it seems as if this is a life sentence to these facilities that are established for the purpose of rehabilitation. Many institutions are low-staffed, which makes it difficult to give each patient adequate attention and care. So when these institutions are low-staffed, the quality of the staff is lowered in order to fill a necessity for caregivers, leading to situations of patient abuse and improper training on how to interact with patients with certain illnesses and disabilities. Because these cases started the important conversation of quality of care for mental illness and disability, there's a hope that the quality of patient care and rehabilitation will increase also.